fiddling, sweet you did the city. At home there were 17 year old boys and they were here for There's being in a gang called the disciples high on crack, took the machine All right, all right. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Infinite Fringe. My name is Billy Ray Valentine, Billy the Kid. And we are here. We're streaming live on Rockfin at the America Unplugged channel impromptu. We just figured, hey, why the hell not? And this is going up on the podcast immediately afterwards. What's up to all you people? What's going on? I know I've been a stranger, but like I said, we're trying to finish the year strong here at the Fringe. It's almost over. And uh, I, I truly appreciate everybody who tunes in week after week or month after month at this point. <laughs> but thank you very much. And, and of course, everybody on AmericaUnplugged.com. I have a very special guest on with us today. Uh, uh, no stranger uh, to us here at The Fringe. And, and one of the very few people that, um, that I still quite enjoy having on, you know, and, and it's been a while. And as fate would have it, Destiny has brought us together one more time, and thank the Lord for that. Uh, uh, esteemed researcher, JFK researcher, filmmaker, has several under under his cap. Uh, the Dark Legacy series is uh, the ones that you probably know the most. Um, Mr. John Hankey is here with us today, all the way from the West Coast, ladies and gentlemen. He's He's looking relaxed, looking ready to go. Look at the dude right there. Very happy to have him on. Mr. Hankey, welcome back to the Infinite Fringe. How are you, sir? Billy Ray, I am so delighted to be here. I'm, <laughs> I'm happy as a clam. Very, very good. It's good to see you. It's good to talk Likewise. to you. You know, oh, you and, have no idea. I was, I was, are you in Brooklyn? I am in the Bronx, sir. So, I was, uh, which we're, tar as far as I'm concerned, we're targeted with COVID. Okay. And I was just terrified that, uh, that you, they might have gotten to you uh, as well, they did to you. I will tell you, um, I, I think you're right. I think I think we were targeted for sure, for sure. Um, and and being here, it's it's a different perspective than most of America, right? Because uh, a lot of America, not necessarily where you are. I know you 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 probably saw some stuff, but here, you know, we saw some craziness. And, and um, yeah, it's you can make that certainly make the argument that people here were targeted for sure, for sure. Um, because at one point I was sitting in my apartment thinking, when is this going to knock on my door? Because people not necessarily immediately attached to me, but that I knew, you know, were, were dying. People were dying and it was just getting closer and closer. And like the walls were, were, were caving in on me. Why they were dying. I mean, the people are going to, are going to challenge that all day long. But they were dying nonetheless, you know, and, I, and I, I, I know they were. These are real people that were affected by real things. And, and it was only a matter of time. I was like, Jesus Christ, when is this knocking on my door? Luckily, I'm good, you know, and my family's been good and everybody's been good, you know. So uh, I thank the Lord for that. But, but I, 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 uh, I tend to sympathize with what, you just, uh, with what you just said. How did it go down by you over there? see that's one of the things is that la was much more lightweight well well right i live in a, a fairly decent neighborhood i live in the affluent 
black African-American section of, of uh, Los Angeles, which is, you know, lower middle class. But um, it, it was very lightweight around here. But, you know, I, I've taught in South Central for 30 years. I have lots and lots of students with whom I'm still very friendly. And I heard from them about, you know, just the disastrous effects, the, the people that they lost, fathers mm -hmm. and, and uncles and, and grandfathers. Um, but it's, it's my observation that, um, well, this is off topic, but I'll Fine. say it. You know yeah. who Jeffrey Sachs is? I do not. You should write it down. Okay. Jeffrey Sachs is, he's a tenured professor at Columbia. He's a big shot in the UN. He mm -hmm. was Boris Yeltsin's chief Western economic advisor. He knows all of these people. He, he talks about how he spoke with the former um, prime minister of Germany about how the Russians and the Ukrainians in 2020, 22 had mm -hmm. reached um, an agreement, a peace deal, right? Yeah. That they were going to have elections and whoever won would win, right? The, oh, the, and so, so he's a truth teller and, and, and an important truth teller and a big shot and the Lancet, right? The chief medical publication in the United Kingdom hired him to head their investigation into the origins of COVID. And he was interviewed oh, in the Atlantic. I remember now. I know exactly where you're going. Yeah. Uh, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but but he's the one that's going around saying that uh, it originated in in the United States. Absolutely. Right. Go ahead. <laughs> and you know that's that's some high powered stuff. Right. And and let me make the observation that you. Oh well, and on and on. We we didn't come here to talk about COVID, but we can take five minutes. Yeah, absolutely. You, there hasn't been an mRNA vaccine since the COVID mRNA vaccine, which was produced two days after the Chinese published the genome. Right. It took them two days, to, they say, to develop the mRNA vaccine, and they haven't developed a single other mRNA vaccine. An mRNA vaccine, if you, I saw a YouTube the YouTube, a, a TED talk of this woman who was extremely knowledgeable. I have a credential to teach biology, right? I know my way around. And wow, <laughs> you know, I'm listening to her trying to keep up. And she's describing the development of the mRNA vaccine. The mRNA vaccine was a moonshot. Do you understand what I'm, it's a moon landing. That it, It's comparable to the development of the hydrogen bomb or to the, the landing of men on the moon starting from scratch, from, from no right. missiles right, right, right. in your stockpile to developing right. missiles that were capable to, right? I mean, literally, to you have to develop the missiles that are capable, and then you have to do all of this other stuff in order to land men on the moon and bring them back. I guess it's not that hard to land them. It's, it's bringing them back. That's the trick. Right. And and the mRNA vaccine is comparable to that. They had been working on it for 20 years. Right. Without the sh a shadow of a doubt, they had been working on it for 20 years. So we can debate why the U.S. military decided that they were going to attack the people of the United States and the people of Western Europe. The, the deaths were mainly in in almost exclusively in the United States and in Western Europe until somebody started to 
talk about that. Doctors in India started to talk about, hey, wait a minute, what's going on? And so then they said, oh, yeah, we and, and then they launched attacks in India to try to, to catch up with the numbers and, and make it not be quite so screamingly obvious. Anyway, we'll set that aside for now. No, that that's we we need to go down that road at some point. <laughs> Got to bring you back for that. You know, hopefully before the end of before the end of the year. Uh, you made a fantastic documentary on Mr. Donald Trump, uh, which everybody everybody should watch. Uh, all of all of John's documentaries, and you know they're dirt cheap, and he does this on purpose. This is a labor of love for him. He wants you to know the information. Um. Mr. Hankey, I got to get some autographed copies. I'm going to throw some money in your way. You got, you got to send me some autographed copies. They're, um, they're mainly free, but yeah. oh, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Um, awesome. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> you know, so, um, so we'll, we'll go down that road because it's, it's very interesting and it, it, uh, you know, it builds a bridge over to a lot of the geopolitical situation that's going on right now, even though we're not too far removed from the whole COVID situation, but all of this stuff links in regardless. It all, it links, in. It all links in. Exactly. We're going to put it to the side for now. Um, and uh, the, the anniversary. And, and I got to tell you, we, we were talking a little bit off air, John and I, and, and I was telling them and every, anybody that listens to America unplugged, and and they've gone back uh, a few episodes. You know, you, you guys know about the way I feel about what, what I called. And I, I, I said this to Mr. Hankey. I, I, let's see if he has a different take on it. But like a resurgence of of the JFK conspiracy narrative. And I call it conspiracy narrative because it's different from the mainstream. Right. And it's being it's being pushed. It's, it's different from the normal, the typical mainstream narrative. And now this narrative is being pushed into the mainstream, in my opinion. Tucker Carlson came out, and, and, and I am no fan of Tucker Carlson whatsoever, right? And so and, and Tucker Carlson begins to talk about it this morning on CNN. Oh, and, okay. and we're recording this. Oh, what's up, sir? What happened? No, I didn't. I'm, not, I'm completely unaware of what you're telling oh, me. Go ahead. Okay, all right. so, so Tucker Carlson, a few months back. Um, started talking about JFK and about uh, that the official story was nonsense and a bunch. And this is on television. Well, he, this was while he was still on Fox, but it wasn't too long ago. It's towards the end of his tenure. Just going off about it, and I'm like, why would he do that? You know, <laughs> why why would he do that? I don't trust Tucker Carlson as far as I can throw him. So I'm like, what? Why is this a thing? But this morning on um, on CNN, Rob Reiner was on and he has a new jfk podcast out hold on let me get the name of it not that i'm promoting his his stuff it's just rob reiner has a jfk podcast who killed jfk is the name of the podcast it's up to episode three as of this morning it was the number eight podcast in the nation after getting the publicity that he is going around getting, it's probably going to catapult to number one at some point, especially with the anniversary coming up in, in two days. It's on Wednesday. Especially he has me on, but anyway, right. go ahead. <laughs> you know, and, and I'm sitting there and I'm watching this. And they are openly discussing the possibilities of other shooters. They're openly discussing uh, the, for lack of a better term, conspiratorial narrative of what happened 
to JFK, you know, who may have killed him and and all the all the the intricacies around it, right? All the details, you know, and they're going in, going in. Yeah, come, come listen to my podcast. I'm like, great, great, fantastic, you know. And and I was talking to Don about it, Don Jeffries, about Tucker Carlson in particular, you know, and uh he was pretty happy that Tucker was out there talking about this. And I I was not, you know, I was like, I, I don't, I don't see this as a win, you know, but he was like, yeah, you know, the this is the furthest we've come. And I can understand because um, Mr. Jeffries is a lot like you, that you've, you've devoted your life to this, you know? And that's why I give you all the respect in the world because that's what you've done. You've devoted your life to this. Like it's your life's work, you know? And um, to see some of the details that you guys have uncovered in the community has uncovered, put in a mainstream and, and pushed out to people You'll take it. I don't know if you'll take it, but I mean, Don will take it no matter what. He's like, I'll take it. You know, just that people are, I'm like, no, no, no. The reason that they're putting this out right now is because no one is going to be held accountable for it. And, and, and I, I, I am personally invested in something like this because of 9-11. So 9-11 was my JFK. You know, oh, I yeah. was alive. I was alive for it. I was in the city for it. I was there when it happened. I saw the towers collapse in front of my face. It changed my life. It's my JFK. You know, and, and, and you know where you were. You know where you were when exactly. you watched those towers come down. Exactly. And exactly where I was, you know, exactly where I was. And I'll never forget it. And um, 20 years from now, the equivalent of Tucker Carlson will be on whatever TV evolves to be. The chip in somebody's brain. I, I don't know how it's going to go down. The Neuralink, you know, and they're going to be talking about it openly. Oh, well, here's what happened. Because whomever, uh, you know, is is responsible is is either one, not going to be held accountable or two, dead. You know, um, so that, that's that's the way I am looking at it. Now, and I saw your film. You know, and and I saw that today, and I didn't finish. I'm, I'm like I said, I'm about an hour into it. Fantastic. We're gonna put the link to the film in the show notes uh, for the Infinite Fringe on the infinitefringe.podbeam.com and the Infinite Fringe on Apple Podcast. And I will put it in the chat here on the America Unplugged Rockfin channel for you guys to see. I'm gonna play the trailer also, so you guys can take a look at it. Do you sell merch? I don't, but we're gonna. <laughs> we're gonna. Well, because so, I could send you a bunch of DVDs and people can buy them from you and they could be autographed. And then while I'm saying that, let me say a couple yeah. of things. And one right. is that I have been canceled. My stuff was up on both of my JFK, the, the murder of JFK Sr. and the murder of JFK Jr. were up on Prime for 10 years and they took them down a couple of months ago. Hmm. I had both movies up on, on Amazon. I'm sorry, on um, Netflix mm -hmm. for years and years and years. And here I bring them this video that is so much better, so much more complete, so much more thorough than anything I've ever done before in my life. And right. they rejected it. Um, you know, any number of people that you can find out there who have been doing um, radio stuff for the last 20 years and had it up on YouTube and YouTube erased all of it. And for a whole bunch of people, that was the only copies that they had. So the, my point that I want to make is that I want to tell people, right. go, if you, if, 
you don't get it from Billy Ray. <laughs> it, go to Prime and you can buy a DVD. And the thing about a DVD is that now you have a copy. Right. And if you have a DVD player, you can open up it, Google it. You can open up the DVD and you can steal the file and put it on your on your hard drive. And now you have a digital file that you can share with anybody, right? That it's a digital file if you and it's right, you, Google will let you share it, yeah. uh, no matter what the size. Anyhow, um, so that it creates a permanent record that they can't take away from you. And um, that to me, that's the thing that terrifies me about the future. Oh my goodness. Uh, well, I'll say this, and but I wanna try to get to the point that you were making. The, the National Geographic has put out a, well, they're reviving it and they've put it on Hulu. That's the one that I have seen. And it's just, it's, you know, it's 1963 all over again. It's the Warren Commission. Yeah. They're they're putting forward the single bullet theory. I didn't. It's pretty hard to put forward the single bullet theory and not draw a laugh, right? Mm -hmm. They're they're putting forward Oswald as the lone nut. Now, Trump, you may recall, said that Cruz, Ted Cruz's yes, father, right? That there were pictures of Ted Cruz's father <laughs> right. Right, right, with right. Lee Harvey Oswald. And when he was talking about it, he said this was months before, and he paused and said Oswald was killed. He didn't say months before Oswald killed Kennedy because he wouldn't say that Oswald killed Kennedy because if you can persuade people that you're a truther on the Kennedy assassination, you, you know, you win all sorts of points. And I don't know to what extent people are familiar with Hamlet, but Hamlet's father gets Hamlet's father dies, and and Hamlet comes to believe that his uncle um, had killed his father, and he kills some old man, right. and he ends up killing his mother, and he ends up killing several other people before he finally kills his uncle, who in fact, right on screen, that is to say, in the play, confesses to the audience that he committed this murder. My point is that. You have to not blame the wrong guy. Okay, you know that a the Kennedy was killed by a conspiracy, but you—that's now you know nothing. If if, <laughs> you, if that's what you know, right. you know nothing. And we're going to get into it. But uh, so let me say this uh, at the start, and maybe it's the the most important point, which is that I'm 71 years old. I got drafted to for, to go to Vietnam and refused, but I also. And to talk about Gaza for a second, oh, you know, ahead. I'm an American. Yeah. That doesn't mean I'm a fascist. Right. And if you're an Israeli, that doesn't mean you're a fascist. But if you're not a fascist, you have to stand up and scream with everything in you about the, the slaughter that's being carried out in your name in Gaza. Agreed. And if you're an American, as I was when I was 20 and the U.S. is killing 2 million people in Cambodia completely illegally, you have to get out there. And, you know, I got clubbed and gassed and chased and, and arrested protesting the war in Vietnam. And when I saw the Zapruder film for the first time, the video mm. of Kennedy getting his brains blown out, the video that shows the, the kill shot, I saw that and said, Johnson did it. 
And I was encouraged by Oliver Stone and all sorts of other people to believe that Johnson did it. And the take was that the day of the funeral, the Sunday of the funeral, Johnson went to the funeral and went back and walked into the National Security Council and passed out National Security Action Memorandum 273 announcing the Vietnam War. That's not the case. Now, the people who said it didn't, they hadn't declassified the documents, but they have declassified the documents and you have to, oh my goodness, you have to have done 10 years of research to read that document and understand what it says. But there's one line in it that says that his administration is endorsing Kennedy's October, the the decisions contained in the October 6th, 6th, trip report for withdrawal it i'm sure that the 273 says for withdrawal but you don't know but i'll tell you in the movie jfk donald sutherland this guy in this black trench coat comes up to jim garrison they're on the national mall i think um right by the lincoln memorial right and he tells garrison this story about how he wrote the trip report that I just referred to in NSAM 273. He wrote the trip report and that, I'm gonna interrupt and say, this is a real guy, it turns out. His name is Colonel Fletcher Prouty. And, and praise be, okay, <laughs> are you seeing what I'm seeing? I am. This is um this shows the Sapruder film. It um, did. There it, there is. it is. Okay. There it is. And and I wanted to I wanted to just show it really quickly because it's key. This is freeworld.fm. This is the radio station we're launching. We've launched. Okay. And well, um, so that that scene of Jackie on the back of the limousine. Right, right, if right. you've seen it, you've seen it. And if you haven't, you can right. rent the movie JFK for cheap and watch it. And it's it, they give you a very, very clear copy of the Zapruder film, but we'll get to that. Um, The point that I was trying to come to is that in that movie, Colonel Fletcher Prouty, who in the movie is called Mr. X and is played by Donald Sutherland, is wearing a black hat and a black trench coat and is explaining to Kevin Costner playing Jim Garrison that Kennedy decided to get everybody out of Vietnam. And he sent McNamara and Taylor to Vietnam. And while they were they were in Vietnam, Kennedy calls in General Krulak and says, you're going to write their trip report for them. And Krulak calls in Colonel Prouty and a small team of other people. And they write the trip report. And Kennedy looks at it and says, I want you to say all in the, they already had instructions to say all military out. And Prouty has a distinct recollection that Kennedy looked in that at that and said, no, it has to include the CIA, say all personnel. And so they wrote all personnel out of Vietnam by the end of calendar 65. So that's what Johnson is making a reference to. And we can, I can either keep going down that path or, or we can come back to it as you please. Continue. Okay. Um, well, the, my point was that. I had been trained to 
blame Johnson for the Kennedy assassination. I didn't have to be trained to hate Johnson. I saw all of his pro-war speeches. And, you know, like I said, I'm getting chased and, and gassed and clubbed and arrested <laughs> and so on. Right. I have a visceral reaction. I mean, I when I see Johnson giving one of his pro-war speeches, I need to stop and go throw up. Um, but... So for the last 10, I've been retired for eight years. And for eight years, I have been this deep. Um, I mean, I had to go to my doctor and get Adderall so that I could get through this stuff because it, it's, it's all so thick. But what I discover is that in 1961, let me make sure I finished telling that Costner story. So, that, so they, put in this, they put in the trip report that Kennedy has made the decision to withdraw everybody by, by 60. No, no, no. In the trip report, they recommend that all the troops should be out by 63, and Kennedy accepts their recommendation. And in my video, oh my goodness, if, if you've watched Ken Burns on Vietnam, if you've watched anybody on Vietnam, if you've read 10,000 books on Vietnam, you know <laughs> that Kennedy didn't decide to get out of Vietnam. But wait, but and you're wrong. You have been misinformed. <laughs> you have been lied to by 10,000 books, including Ken Burns. And, you know, maybe we don't have to burn him at the stake. But um, it seems to me that there is a price to be paid for that sort of high end, intense lying. Hmm. But um, Professor James Galbraith at the University of Texas, he holds a chair, right? He's a very, very, very prestigious guy. And he told me, I went to his house and interviewed him on camera, and he told me how they had released 200,000 documents from the Kennedy assassination files. And one of the professors in charge of the research was going around handing his friends, his trusted friends, boxes and saying, can you go through this and see if there's anything of value? And Galbraith goes through and in the video, you see what he found, which is a memo from Maxwell Taylor, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, to the heads of all the military branches, the Joint Chiefs saying, yeah. the president has accepted the October 6th trip report and the following language comes from that trip report. All personnel out of Vietnam by the end of 65 and all of your decisions starting this minute will be aimed at achieving that goal, says Maxwell Taylor to the Joint Chiefs. The date of the trip report or the date of the memo is, is October 6th. Oswald was hired at the book depos depository a week later. Mm. Kennedy gave that order and they decided to kill him. That's when they decided to kill him. Anyhow, um, so for any, which obviously, if, if Johnson referenced that decision, Johnson was had seen the trip report, yeah. you know, well, you, you have... If, if you watch the video, you will see that Johnson and Kennedy had a very, very, very close relationship. Johnson took Kennedy's side in the most extreme situations. The day Kennedy walked into the Oval Office, he began being pounded to send troops to Vietnam and to start bombing the North. And he resisted them till the day he died. But in 61, he sent Johnson to Vietnam and Johnson came back and said, 
whatever he he's he gets quoted saying that Diem is the Churchill of Vietnam. Well, how come he doesn't get quoted saying in the same report that you better not, if you have any brains at all, he says to Kennedy, send any troops to Vietnam if you don't want them to end up chasing your regulars across the 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 rice paddies of Vietnam, you better and you better learn the lesson that the French learned and not send troops to Vietnam. This is 1961. And I guess I'll keep going down this path until you interrupt me. And if I if I fail to explain something, please be sure to do that. No, you're fine. Go ahead. Okay, good. So in my video, one of the things that you'll find out is that the two most famous witnesses at the Grassy Knoll, Malcolm Summers and Gene Hill, both of them have been quoted extensively for what they saw because they were on either side of the limousine when Kennedy's head exploded. And both of them said that the limousine was stopped. There are four news people who were there. That's the part. Uh, I'm sorry, John, that I was just like, what the hell, right? What the hell? I remember. I am old enough to remember, you know, um, (laughs) anybody who's seen the Sapruder film is old enough to remember that thing does not stop. It just keeps going. So I I, I remember that. It doesn't slow down. No. It doesn't cause the slightest. Right. Like not even a little bit, you know, and and then I see in, in your film testimony after testimony of people saying random, I mean, not random people, but they're not together. These are at different instances saying, well, yeah, I was there and it made a full freaking stop. And I'm like, what, how, you know, but go ahead, go ahead. All four motorcycle cops are on audio tape and you get to hear it. You know, that was some work finding all of this stuff (laughs) saying that the limousine stopped. One of them says, well, yeah, it must have stopped because homeboy over there, the uh, whatever is Jackson, got off his motorcycle and walked between Kennedy's limousine and the Secret Service limousine and came back and got on his motorcycle. So the, the limousine was stopped for at least that long, this guy says. And, you know, he wasn't looking at his watch and he doesn't have a clear recollection of how long it stopped. But he has a very clear recollection of this guy getting off his motorcycle and walking between the two cars. So that's how he times it. Um, the four news people who were on the scene are all, you get to see them looking at the camera and saying that the limousine stopped mm-hmm. and how crazy that was. <laughs> and then you get to hear Senator Yarborough, who was sitting one car length behind Kennedy's limousine and they were stopped. So, you know, we're talking 20 feet. He probably got brain splatter on him, saw the the limousine stop. He heard very clearly the shot from the front and he tells um, Geraldo Rivera that it was six seconds. Well, you know, six seconds is not a pause. The point is that ladies and gentlemen, roll up your sleeves. Your mind has been raped. If you have seen the Zapruder film, your mind has been raped by this really insanely carefully constructed lie that the secret service was protecting Kennedy. No, whoever the guys, the shooter was on the grassy knoll couldn't possibly have made the kill shot. If the secret service 
hadn't stopped and waited for the kill shot. The point is that Johnson, well, one of the points and one of the major points is that Johnson saw what Yarborough saw, which is that Kennedy had been, that the Secret Service had completely participated in the assassination. Johnson heard what Yarborough heard, which was very, very clearly a shot from the front. I mean, if you know anything about gunshots, right? When you when you fire a rifle, there's an enormous explosion that comes out the end of the barrel. And if you were, it's a shock wave. And if you are standing within that shock wave, you hear something very different from what somebody who is standing behind the rifle hears, right? right? You hear a hundred times louder. And Johnson and Yarborough both that's what they heard, right? The, the shot from the rear. And there were at least two shooters from the rear and there may be four. There were th in, in Dark Legacy, isn't it? No, I, I may have cut it out because it, I'm, I'm all for making 70 minute videos. I think 90 <laughs> minutes is pushing it. And this one is, my latest is 124 minutes. It's, and I apologize to everybody, but you know, it's, None of it is, I, I cut out everything that I possibly could, and it was still 124 minutes long. Anyhow, the point is that Johnson knew that the Secret Service had participated in the assassination. He gets on the plane, and the National Security Advisor Bundy gets on the intercom and announces that the lone shooter is in custody. Everybody on that plane knew that the limousine stopped and that the Secret Service was involved. Everybody on that plane knew that there had been shots from the front. Um, Kenny O'Donnell, Kennedy's closest advisors, were riding with the Secret Service right behind Kennedy. And they knew very, 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 they knew better than Yarborough that there had been a really loud explosion from the front so that they knew that Bundy was lying. The National Security Advisor is announcing. Vince Salandria, if people know who that is, and if they don't, don't sweat it. But he, he's one of the he's one of the very first people to announce to come out against the Warren Commission, and he may have come out against the Warren Commission before they issued their report. He came mm -hmm. out against the media version that there was a lone nut, and that that this was clearly a conspiracy, and that there were clearly um, many people involved, mm -hmm. uh, many of them working for the government, and he said and I stole it from him, that Bundy was announcing that there had been a coup and that he was the spokesman for the killers. And that's what everybody on that plane flying into Washington from Dallas heard Bundy announce, that there had been a coup and that he was one of the people, that he was the spokesman for the people, and that certainly if they knew what was good for them, <laughs> they, they better do what they were told, right. like form the Warren Commission and find that Oswald was the lone assassin. The point that I'm working towards is that Johnson gets to, to D.C. In the morning, he gets a phone call from John McCone, the head of the CIA. And John McCone, the head of the CIA, tells him that Oswald was in Mexico City and was working with the Russians and the Cubans. And they have the tape. 20 minutes, 20 minutes later, J. Edgar Hoover calls Johnson and says, the CIA is lying to you. The CIA is lying to you. Hmm. <laughs> we're, we're, this isn't 24 hours later, right? This is 20 hours later. Right. Um, 
The CIA is lying to you. I have the tape that is not Oswald on the tape. I have the pictures that is not Oswald in the pictures. The CIA seems to be involved in the assassination. Certainly they are involved in a cover-up. And it, it seems that they, where'd they get this, this audio tape? They had to have created it in advance, didn't they? Which means that they were involved in the assassination before it happened. Right, right, right. The planning, everything. Yes. Well, well. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So, and, and. So, so right. Sunday morning. Yeah. Johnson goes to the funeral. Sunday morning, Johnson knows the Secret Service was involved. Hoover tells him that the military took over, that you can see the memos, that the military took over the autopsy and that the body had been altered, had been tampered with before the autopsy started. Hoover's telling Johnson all of this stuff. So Johnson knows that the military was involved because they took over the autopsy and they had stolen the body and tampered with it. He knows that the CIA is involved. He gets to see what the New York Times is putting on their front page the morning after. They put out an extra in the afternoon that had all sorts of truth in it, that Kennedy had entrance wounds on his throat and an entrance wound on, on his right temple and a huge exit wound in the back of his head, clearly indicating shots from the front. That was on the front page of the New York Times. It's, that's in dark legacy. Right. Um, and... Johnson comes back from the funeral and looks the guys that he knows are the killers in the eye and says, Kennedy's plans for withdrawal are in full effect. And in a memo that he writes the next day, he says, anybody who doesn't like that should find another job. And if you find anybody who isn't cooperating with our plans for withdrawal, fire them. Dang. Yeah, right. I mean, if you were in his spot, would you have the guts to do that? <laughs> if I were in his spot, would I have the guts to do that? I hope so. I pray that I would, but I can't say, well, so, so what happened? And I'll, we can, this is the most important part probably. So let, I'm good that we're starting Ooh. off with this. Right. It will, it's the part that pisses off the most people. Oliver Stone will be furious if, and when I've been trying to reach him for two years. Um, because Stone really hates Johnson. Stone's very convinced that, but but he's been good enough to shut up about it, right? He put it in the in JFK, but it's it's pretty mild. It's it's pretty low key that he blames Johnson in the movie JFK. And today he's not running around saying Johnson did it. Johnson did it. Johnson did it. So you know, I give him props for that. Right. So, um, for fifteen months. They're pounding on Johnson, telling him that he has to start bombing and he has to send troops. Frickin' every day for 15 months, and every day for 15 months he tells them no. I guess I won't go into all the detail that's in the movie, but I please, please you know, please, please get the movie and, and learn this and teach your kids and grandkids and great-grandkids, because right. this is all very, very, very well documented. They they bring in Ed Lansdale, who was famous for blowing, setting off car bombs in Saigon. He got nominated to be, Robert Kennedy wanted him to be the ambassador to Vietnam. And somebody high up in the State Department, you know, not at the top, but high enough up, wrote and said, 
wait a minute, <laughs> you know, ooh, the dog Hammarskjöld told our Secretary of State under Eisenhower that at Lansdale blew up those cars in the marketplace. Graham Greene uh, wrote a book called The Quiet American. There's a movie, there's a fabulous movie, write that down, The Quiet American with Kane, uh, Michael Kane. Written by Graham Greene about how Ed Lansdale, they don't use his name, they give him another name, blew up these car bombs in the marketplace in Vietnam in order, and blamed the communists. He did it, and everybody knew he did it. The French, when he walked down the street, he got booed by French military officers who knew that he had done it. They, and they brought him in, and he blew up the U.S. air base at Plaikou. And on Christmas Eve, Johnson, Taylor wrote a memo to Johnson saying, oh, they blew up Plaikou, you have to send, you have to send troops and you have to start bombing. And Johnson wrote him a letter on Christmas Eve saying, if you guys, I'm not going to be dragged into a war because you idiots can't defend your own bases. If we have to move the planes to aircraft carriers and not have bases, we will do that. But I'm not, you're not going to drag me into war because you set off bombs in the barracks and killed a bunch of American soldiers. I'm anyway, well, you know, there's a guy, he, he saw Kennedy get murdered. He, he's he understands that these guys are capable of some dangerous stuff. Right. Oh my goodness. This is, this is 13 months after Kennedy's murder. If it's Christmas Eve, it's 13 months after Kennedy's murder. And he's telling Maxwell Taylor who he knows was involved F you, buddy. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. So how did they get him to do it? Well, I can't remember the guys. Dalek. Yay. I pulled that one out of thin air. <laughs> Robert Dalek right. has written about 1,200 pages about Johnson. And he's written, he, he's very, very celebrated. And he's written all sorts of biographies of all sorts of people. And as I say, he's very well respected and he's He's very celebrated. And I told you that I went to Texas, to Austin, to the home of James Galbraith, the professor who found the Maxwell Taylor document. And we talked for a long time. And he told me, we were trying to figure out what changed Johnson, right? We have, he, you know, I gave him all the evidence that I, I put into the video and we're discussing how they turned Johnson around. And he remembers how Robert Dalek is doing all of this research at the University of Texas, which is the Johnson Library. And he would, he and Galbraith knew each other and Dalek didn't know anybody else at that location. And so he would come and shoot the breeze with Galbraith on a regular basis. And one day he walked in and said, oh my God, I just saw the CIA memo in which they warned Johnson that Castro was going to blow up his plane with his entire family on it. Well, you have to translate that from CIA ease. The CIA are the guys who had told Johnson that Oswald was working for the Russians and it was a lie. It wasn't a lie that Oswald, that it wasn't a lie that Kennedy had been murdered. What was a lie was that it was the Cubans rather than the CIA. And so if they're telling Johnson, your family's going to die because their plane's going to get shot down by the Cubans, what they're telling him is your family's going to die 
because their plane's going to get shot down and we're going to blame it on the Cubans and use it to justify an invasion of Cuba that will kill half a million Cubans and probably 50,000 American troops. And, and you get to see it in the video. One of um, Johnson's advisors described how they had never seen such a broken man as they saw in Johnson the day he gave the order to send troops and start the bombing. Now, I can tell you, <laughs> when they come to kill my kids and they tell me, you, if you say this, we won't kill your kids, I'm mm. saying it <laughs> anyway. But they haven't done that yet. Um, right? <laughs> uh. <laughs> I mean, you know, um, and it, it's a tough predicament to be in, right? You, it's easy to pass judgment when you're not there, right? It's easy to pass judgment when, when you're not walking in the shoes of whomever that person is, right? Well, it's impossible to pass an informed judgment if you don't know any of the stuff I just told you, which is right. all documented. Right. Everything I have just told you is buried in a mountain of 10,000 memos that I went through, and none of them are written so that you can understand the real meaning and like I said, I'm taking Adderall so that I can get through this stuff. I, I, I drink coffee now. <laughs> I never want to see another Adderall again as long as I live. Um, well, my body and my body don't like them. What am I going to tell you? Um, so your body's right. <laughs> so let's get back to the Zapruder film. Right. Now, you're me 50 years ago. <laughs> I, I was an A plus student throughout. I got I had a 4.0 in college. Right. Uh, anyway, and then similar grades in high school. And history right. was my favorite subject. I read, I was reading 800 page books when I was in the seventh grade about Hitler because my family's German and I wanted to know how the hell did this happen? Well, you ain't <laughs> going to find out by reading the books that they, that they have at the library. I'll tell you that. Right. Anyhow, but, but so I have this. I have a fairly high energy level and I'm dogged. Once I get onto something, I don't stop. Right. So um, the Zapruder film, 20 years old, I see the Zapruder film and I say, oh my God, <laughs> you know, history is my favorite subject. I'm 20. How do I not know any of this stuff. And I went down to the LA Public Library the next day and got every book by Mark Lane and every book by Jim Garrison and came home. And in a couple of weeks, I was doing lectures at UCLA <laughs> and at UC Santa Cruz. So, but I'd seen the Zapruder film and the limousine doesn't stop in the Zapruder film, but are you guys all paying attention? Because <laughs> this is going to be on your final. <laughs> the, and on the midterm, which is tomorrow. Damn. So pay attention. All right. They they eliminated the the limo stop. Now, if you watch my videos, you know that I do a lot of animation. I know a lot about altering videos. And I know that that's good gravy. They must have driven the limousine down that street empty. That's my professional judgment, that in order to create the Zapruder film, they must have had an original film of the limousine going down that street. Well, they didn't release the Zapruder film for another three years. Three years? 
Uh, I don't know. No, when. no, they released it in. Uh, oh, Johnson was it was sixty eight, so they had five years to produce the Zapruder film, and at some time during that period, they drove the limousine or one that looked just like it down. Ah, so after right? the fact. It uh, well could have been. It doesn't matter. The point is, as a professional, I'm saying that I think they had to have had that mm -hmm. raw footage. If I were doing it, I would want that raw footage. And then, it, you know, you cut and paste. Frame by frame, you cut and paste. And it it's all much easier. Anyhow, um, but they left in the shot from the front. Now, the Zapruder film is not a lie of the shot from the front. The movement of Kennedy's body back into the left, I'm quite certain is is valid is unaltered why would it be all of the doctors in the dallas in the emergency room 10 of them said that kennedy had an entrance wound on his right temple and a huge fist-sized exit wound in the back of his head so he was sh surely shot from the front and mm -hmm. very predictably his body would have reacted the way that you see in the zapruder film so i have no reason to question the movement of Kennedy's body in the Zapruder film, but in the video, in my video, I took 10 hours and I, I cut out Kennedy's body and he, I cut he and Jackie, I cut the interior of the limousine out and rearranged the frames and put it back into the Zapruder film. And his body now moves from the back to the front. Wow. It took me 10 hours. Why didn't they do that? They wanted us to know that he was shot from the front. Why in 1968 did they want us to know that Kennedy was shot from the front? Well, I've had five years to think about that. And I'll tell you, I didn't come up with an answer in the first five minutes. Mm. It took me a while. And my answer today is that they wanted us to blame Johnson and the Warren Commission for lying about it. They wanted to demonstrate, and they did very, very, very vividly and movingly, that the Warren Commission conclusion that Oswald killed Kennedy's shooting from the rear was a lie because they wanted to get Nixon elected. It's not in my video. Nixon was in Dallas the day that Kennedy was shot. Actually, it's in Dark Legacy that Nixon was in Dallas the day that Kennedy was shot, and he lied about how he learned that Kennedy was dead, that is to say, he told, I'd, at this point I'd have to make up the names of the magazines, but it's in, Reader's Digest was one of them. It's, right. He was interviewed two, twice, 10 years apart. And in one of the interviews, he says that as he was taking a cab from the New York airport home, a man came running up and told them that Kennedy had been shot. And in 10 years later, he said it was a woman who came running up telling them Kennedy had been shot. Well, my good friend Billy Ray will tell you, you don't forget how you learned. I could take you to the elementary school into the sixth grade classroom and to the desk where I was sitting when the principal came to the door sobbing right. Right. that Kennedy was dead. Um, but Nixon doesn't remember. <laughs> well, he sh of course he does, yeah, but he's, he lies when he tells the story. Bush says that he was somewhere in Texas. He doesn't remember. Well, what you will find out, and maybe it's time to get to that. But but you, shall we go to the shooters? 
Yeah, go right ahead. Go right ahead. Stage is yours, sir. Well, I'm I'm happy to have direction, and and then let me let me tell you all a little story. I'm very I welcome criticism to the maximum degree. That's you're not going to learn from people who agree with you. Right. <laughs> you hear what I'm saying? So. There's a guy who will remain nameless, but if you look at all, they put Oliver Stone, Stone's name on this three episode version, I forget what it's called, but on JFK, and this guy wrote it, and, and when I first produced JFK 2, Dark Legacy, he made a big deal about attacking me on everything that he could think of to attack me on. And, <sighs> you know, there's an FBI memo that names, there's two FBI memos that name Bush, and both of them are entitled Assassination of President Kennedy, and one of them puts him in Dallas, and the other one names him as a CIA guy in charge of Mongoose. And all of the mongoose people say that they were in Dealey Plaza and that they were decoys. Hmm. So let's focus on that for a minute. Uh, Marita Lorenz is a, one, of, one of the most famous witnesses, most famous members of Operation Mongoose. And she ended up being a, a well-known and famous witness. She got called to testify in one of the, probably the most highly publicized trial. And she says that Frank Sturgis, who people who are assassination buffs, they all know the name Frank Sturgis. Frank Sturgis told her she, she realized why they were in Dallas. She says she was in Miami and, and she was in Operation Mongoose and two station wagons full of her associates drove up full of guns and they drove into Dallas and they went to a motel and without going into all the details of how she figured out that they were there to kill Kennedy. And she says, oh, no, I'm out of here. And Frank Sturgis, she says, told her, honey, we're just going to be decoys. You don't have to worry. We're not going to participate in the assassination. We are here as decoys. Well, if they were there as decoys, who did the shooting? So that's where we are now, we're going to talk about who were the shooters. Um, how much time do we have? Uh, go, go right ahead. Just to take your time. Um, I'm, I'm leaving it wide open for you. Okay. Typically, as much time as we want. Typically, right. we're, we're, we're in and out in an hour. We have eclipsed that, but I want to get it all in. Plus, Don Jeffries might join us soon. So just go right ahead. I want to know uh, about the shooters. I want to know about uh, uh, George Bush's involvement in it. We've, we've spoken okay. about it before. But I, I definitely want to touch on that. And um, and I want to talk about the impact of that assassination today. You know, because, I mean, and, and this is moving forward, right? Like, I mean, the the general, correct me if I'm wrong, like your your conclusion here is that, that they killed him because he was going to stop these wars, right? It's like, let's challenge... Uh, 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 what is it for peace, right? Well, let's let's we're, it was not an arms race, it's a peace race, right? That's in what the video, right. that's an that's a famous phrase. In the video, he gave a speech at the United Nations mm -hmm. in which he called for the elimination of 
all weapons and all armies. Beautiful. Right. It, yeah. He woke up one day and said, wait a minute, if we're going to get rid of, if the United States and Russia are going to make peace so that we can, so that we can get rid of nuclear weapons so that we can stop threatening the world with the extermination of everybody. Well, if we're going to get rid of, why get rid of some of them? If we're going to dedicate ourselves to peaceful resolution of all problems, right. why don't we get rid of all armies and all weapons? And he said, the negotiations to achieve that ends are beginning today. This afternoon, my people and Khrushchev's people are meeting about what they can do as a first step with that as the ultimate goal. He was killed by the military industrial complex. Right. Now, I mentioned Jeffrey Sachs. Jeffrey Sachs is running around, and I mean this in the most positive way, preaching about how the war in Ukraine was unnecessary, that the Ukrainians and the Russians had negotiated a peaceful end to the war. They were going to have elections in Crimea, UN-supervised elections in Crimea. They were going to have UN-supervised elections in the Russian-speaking parts of Ukraine that the Russians had invaded. Well, they didn't invade because those guys had declared themselves an independent republic and had had elections in which it was affirmed that they were going to be uh, an independent republic and they invited the Russians in. So the Russians didn't invade. They got invited into these two independent countries and they came in. The point is that Sachs was told by the former prime minister of Germany who was there that the, this peace had been agreed to and the United States came in and said, no, they told Zelensky, no, 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 no. You have to kill 600,000 Ukrainians and maim and destroy the lives of several million more before we can have this war end. So get in there and start the dying. Um, and Sachs blames it. So, so who benefits? And Sachs looks around and says, well, the, the military industrial complex, the arms manufacturers in Germany, France, Britain, and the United States, who I insist in which my, I think my video reveals are the same people. There's one military industrial complex for all of the US and Western Europe. There's one big pharma for all of the US and Western Europe, and it's the same people. The military industrial complex is big pharma. They're right. big agro. They're anyhow. <laughs> no, no, no. But but I, I think I think that makes I mean Look at the current state of affairs here. Look at the right. current state of affairs. It's, Look how it doesn't matter who the president is. Right. It's never If the military-industrial complex wants a war, you have a war. And it doesn't um, matter who. If the military-industrial complex wants you spending 99% of your, your available money, your disposable money on the military, it doesn't matter who the president is. That's what you're going to have. You're going to have a, a nine, $800, $900 trillion defense budget. Right. right. If you start counting in the, the benefits that have to be paid to the, the families of the deceased and injured war veterans, it's up to about a trillion dollars. And it doesn't matter who the president is, if it's right, if it's Obama, if it's Trump, if it's if it's Biden, Biden don't you're, matter. Right. you're going to be spending a trillion dollars that instead of building up your schools, instead of eliminating poverty, instead of eliminating childhood hunger, instead of 
in, you know, in every civilized country on the planet, I think Germany for sure, if you're German, they pay you to go to university. You don't pay tuition. They pay you to go to university because they understand that if you're trying to build a stronger country, the more college graduates you have, the better and stronger your country is. How come we don't understand that? Well, over here, we have to pay for school, and and, and that's it. It's just the way it works, uh, Mr. Hankey. The, the legendary Don Jeffries has joined us today, and I know hey. I know he sympathizes. He, he, you know, here on America Unplugged, we, we talk about that sort of stuff all the time. Mr. Jeffries, fresh off of Jeff Rents. How you doing, sir? What's going on? Good, good to see you guys. Good to see you again, Mr. Hankey. Not to hey. make a, not to make a South Park reference, but I'm sure you've probably heard that before. <laughs> now, now, how dare you? <laughs> well, when I said Mr. Hankey, that's what people think, right? You know. No. Well, listen. I taught, I taught in the inner city of Los Angeles for 30 years. Right. My kids were many of them thugs. And all of them were gang related because you couldn't be alive. And, you know, they, they at least, you know, they had to walk through gang infested neighborhoods. So they at least had friendly relationships. They had to in order to get to school. I know kids who came to school armed. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't come to school if I had to come to school armed. None of them ever brought up South Park. <laughs> Oh, wow. 30 years. Damn, so shame <laughs> on you. <I'm> sorry. <laughs> it's all right. It's, I will forgive you. Well, but you I, will, I will say I think he was the worst character on South Park. But anyway, the least okay. funny. The least funny. Yes. Nothing funny about that at all. But uh, good so, to see I mean, you again. And uh, thank you. Certainly. Likewise. I, I, I agree with uh, it. Obviously, you know, I wrote a book about that survival of the richest. Our priorities are certainly completely out of whack here. And we're seeing that now where, you know, as I said, when, uh, after the uh, you know, the uh, whatever happened in Israel, and they they needed a hundred billion dollars, whatever they claimed they needed right away. Say, so where was the appropriations process for that? Just like where has the appropriations process been for the money when Ukraine needs it? When they needed to bomb Syria back when they ordered Trump to do that, they never need to. You, you never need to find out. Like if we if we if somebody says, hey, you know, we really need to do something about these streets, the potholes, and the the ancient power grids. Let's do so. Well, where are you going to get the money? raise the gas tax, <laughs> raise your personal property taxes. How, how come we don't have to raise any taxes to get a hundred billion dollars to Israel or Ukraine or whatever? I mean, there, nobody even questions this. It's, 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 it's just a joke. Our, our priorities are, they're complete. They're like a, a something from another universe and an and, and anti-universe where everything is done in illogical fashion where, okay, where, where, what should we be doing? Okay. I don't know. Let's not, Let's not uh, let's not end the disparity of wealth. Let's not do anything about the worst infrastructure, you know, in the in the alleged first world that has been touched for sixty years. Let's not do anything about the you know systemic corruption and the the justice system where there's you know there's there's so many levels of uh, justice. No, let's do well, we need to keep we need to funnel money over to this country or that country. It's just it's ridiculous. How long do you suppose this has been going on? <laughs> <laughs> A long time. Well, I I I I think that it didn't. I think after uh, the war between the states, we became the United States um, singular. And I think things changed when the, when the government, the central government got that, that more powerful. Uh, I think a lot of things changed. I think before that, I don't think, um, I think it was a little bit of a different situation. I mean, the corruption well, was always let, there. Let me ask you something that I, you probably haven't thought about. Do you know what, what caused the War of 1812? Uh, Britain invading the United States, piracy. I don't know. <laughs> Britain invading the United States. I mean, can we can we agree the United States did not invade England? 
right. Britain invaded the United States. They, I right. think they held New York City. I believe they controlled the only war I would have supported. I would have definitely supported they, that. You know, they, in a major country, you got to do something. You know, they're storming the White House. You know, they they burned the White yeah, House. That's right. Right, 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 right. And they were planning to close off the Mississippi. Right. They had a blockade of the East Coast, and they were going to close down the Mississippi. But what were we? If you find a book that's old enough, people used to say that the War of 1812 was declared by the Rothschilds because yes. Madison tried to say, we are going to print our own money. We are going to Washington, who owned stock. This has come out recently. You can find it at the George at the Mount Vernon Museum. They somebody stumbled on, holy crap, this guy owned a bunch of shares of the Bank of England, which was owned by the Rothschilds. Mm -hmm. sure. <laughs> really? And <laughs> so Washington and Hamilton handed the government of the United States to the British bankers. The British bankers ran the United States Central Bank, starting with Washington. And Madison tried to put a stop to that. And you can find it in black and white that Nathan Rothschild said, if you guys try to do that, that Britain will declare war on you. And then Britain did. <laughs> and then when the war was over, the United States had to borrow the money from the Rothschilds. They had this huge war debt, as did the British. So both countries <laughs> suffered. So who benefited? Yeah. Uh, the well, military. Well, Hamilton, Hamilton, you know, is the father of debt, and he's also, uh, you know, the, the only cool dead white founding father. You know, he's now a black guy on Broadway. So it's no, no wonder. It's amazing that he happens to be the banker's favorite and uh, the father. Really, of debt. right? <laughs> and he, he's the cool guy. You know, Jefferson is the, uh, uh, you know, is is the, the the worst racist ever. When he, you know, in the original Declaration of Independence, he wrote an entire paragraph condemning the slave trade and wanting to stop it, and they took it out. You know, but he's the he's the horrible racist, and Alexander Hamilton is, is the cool black guy in Broadway, where he invented debt, and was the uh, the, the banker's favorite, the father. Most people, I'm sure you know that the early years of the Republic, that was the central issue between the difference between the Federalists and the Repu Democrat Republicans, because they were one party, Jefferson's party, uh, was the central bank. Jefferson and then later Jackson were, were the foes of the central bank. They didn't want the central bank, which of course would later become the Federal Reserve, uh, you know, basically. And uh, Hamilton was the, the main, they, they were the ones that were pushing the central bank. And it's pretty obvious which side won. So you remember Washington crossing the Delaware? Well, I wasn't there, but I, I yeah, yeah, I've, I've seen pictures. Yeah, paintings. You've seen yeah. pictures. You've seen yeah. photographs. Washington standing in the front of the boat, looking so on. They were, yeah. and and where were they going? Trenton, New Jersey. And what were they going to do when they got there? Uh, I think they were trying to get supplies or something. They were going to kill Hessians. Okay. It was Christmas Eve, and they were going to go into Trenton, New Jersey, and kill Hessians. And guess. Who got paid for every Hessian that got killed? Washington. Not a terrible guess. <laughs> the Rothschilds. The Hessians. Oh, course, yeah. The Hessians were from the Duchy of Hesse. That's why they were called Hessians, which was run by the Rothschilds. If you were unfortunate enough to be male, 
you had to serve in the military. And if you got injured or killed, you didn't get paid. The Rothschilds did. And it's, I think it's more than well, very don't, don't you Don't you think, John, that this is a, that's where in America, where uh, a lot of the uh, belief that the Jews run everything, that it comes from the fact that the Rothschilds, you know, had, had control of the money supply early on. Well, okay. The, you missed the part where we talked about how the Zupruder film, the limousine stopped. Every yep. credible witness, including Senator Yarborough and four news people in Yep. say that the limousine stopped. They eliminated the limousine stop and they left in the shot from the front. How do you, the, the point is, trying to get through this quickly, this is an incredibly complex psyop. Releasing the Zapruder film in 68 and doing this incredible beyond state of the art alteration to the film to remove the limo stop and to leave in the shot from the front so that you could then so anybody who saw yeah, that film would say yeah, yeah. oh my right. god yeah. lyndon johnson and earl warren are implicated in the kennedy assassination because they told us there was a single shooter from the rear and we blame it on them instead of blaming it on the secret service which is who we would blame it on if we saw the limo stop right right anyhow so that this question I, I forget I, I said that in order to try to describe a situation oh right we're talking about the Rothschilds and then yeah I mean, we're talking about how the are you paying close attention ladies and gentlemen because this is also going to be on your final hmm. I insist Henry Ford right is probably the most effective protagonist of the poisonous notion that because the Rothschilds are Jewish, all Jewish people are evil. The international Jew. He, had, he has newspaper. The, he, yeah, yeah. Well, but it's not the international Jew. It's the international city of London bankers. I don't give a damn right. if they're German or Polish or Irish or, or Catholic or Protestant or Buddhist. All of that's irrelevant. What's relevant is that they control the banking industry since the 1600s. They have had an iron grip on all Western finance and they have not lost that grip. They got loosened quite an enormous amount. Oh my goodness. I, I didn't mean to go down this road, but if nobody minds, well, I was going someplace. The Federal Reserve broke the back of Rothschild control of the money supply. So you hear all of this defamation about the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve, the reason you hear all this defamation of the Federal Reserve is because the Rothschilds hate that probably more than they hate Kennedy. Wow. And that's wow. a lot. Anyhow, I haven't heard that before, John. I, that's, 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 Did you say you haven't heard that? Well, there you go. So there was there a central because I mean every country has a a Rothschild style central bank except for our enemies and except Iran, for our Iran, Iran uh, Syria, I think North Korea. I think they're the only three. And what do they have well, in common? The, the axis of evil. <laughs> the axis of evil. The axis of evil. That's right. How dare you not be a slave to the Rothschilds? <laughs> anyway, I was, 
the where where I was before Don arrived, and you know, I'm happy to to change directions, but uh, I wouldn't mind closing this point. I was trying to I was trying to describe how I you you don't learn from people who agree with you. You can only learn from somebody who disagrees with you or who knows something that you don't, right? But if right, sure. so. Certainly. I like it when people criticize me and there's this guy uh, who I refuse to mention his name, but he's very, very, very well known in the, the JFK community. And oh, he just attacked me viciously. How could I? Right. I'm. I'm oh, mention him. He probably hates me, too. I, I got a lot of enemies in the JFK. Yeah, I, no, I won't <laughs> dignify him. I, I I don't name the the stuff I have stuck on the bottom of my shoe either. Um <laughs> Anyway, he attacked me in, in my original Dark Legacy, JFK 2, mm -hmm. um, also known as. I establish that Hunt was certainly involved in the assassination beyond any shadow of a doubt. There's too much in completely rock-solid information. And whether he was the null shooter or not, I'm, I'm open to someone disputing that particular issue. But it kind of doesn't matter. Um, let, let's say that, that it doesn't matter. He, Jesus Angleton, James Jesus Angleton, who was in charge of knowing yeah. about foul play committed by CIA people, wrote a memo saying that Hunt was involved in the assassination and was in Dallas the day of, and that this was going to come out. And, but he's one person. So I was trying to then tie Bush to Hunt. Um, and the Hoover memo that names Bush as a CIA guy, and the Hoover memo is entitled Assassination of John F. Kennedy, and it talks extensively about Operation Mongoose, who Hoover tongue-in-cheek calls misguided anti-Castro Cubans. Anyway, um, I'm trying to tie Bush to Mongoose, and therefore to Hunt, and therefore to the assassination. Right. And therefore, to, to establish that he's the George Bush of the Hoover memo. And in order to try to connect him to Hunt, I'm trying to connect him to the Bay of Pigs because Hunt brags about having been very, very involved in the Bay of Pigs, except for being there and risking his life. But otherwise, he he was he was yeah. heroic at the Bay of Pigs, except for his failure to be there. So Bush, <laughs> I'm in in my video, I mention that one of two of the ships at the Bay of Pigs, there were two ships. One was named the Barbara and one was named the Houston. And Bush's wife is named Barbara and his company was located, headquartered in Houston. Alistair Crowley's daughter, right? <laughs> a rumor, I don't know, that's what I've heard. <laughs> well, Bush named his first plane the Barbara one. He named his second plane the Barbara two. And one of the ships at the Bay of Pigs was named the Barbara. And so this guy attacks me. How that's lame. And he said that, and I stopped and said, Well, you know, you're right. That's lame. Why would I say that? Oh, wait a minute. I remember why I said it. I said it because Mark Lane said it. Why didn't you attack Mark Lane when he said it? You attack me, but you don't attack Mark Lane. You attack me when I quote Mark Lane, but you don't attack Mark Lane. And but wait a minute, for Mark Lane to say it, it's just as lame when Mark Lane says it as it is when I say it, except that Mark Lane, so I'm thinking about all of this. Because this guy attacked me, I'm stopping 
And I'm thinking about all of this. And I said, well, wait a minute. Where did Mark Lane get that lame connection of these boats to putting Bush, connecting Bush to the, the Bay of Pigs? He got it from Fletcher Prouty. He says he got it from Fletcher Prouty. Well, you know, the critical community, critical community is turning on Fletcher Prouty big time now. I mean, I, I don't I don't I try not to engage these people, but they're so they do everything they can to try to uh, discredit any case for conspiracy. So they now have turned on Fletcher Prouty, and they're if you if you I don't know if this is a guy that attacked you, but it could be. Uh, I call them all neocons. They claim to believe in conspiracy, and they're not. They're neo believers, and everything they do is to discredit pro conspiracy witnesses or people that are friendly to the idea of conspiracy, and they do this all the time. So that well, let's come back to that in a second. Let me let me just finish this point really quickly, which is that Fletcher Prouty worked in the Pentagon. His job was to supply the CIA with military equipment. That was his job. And he supplied the military equipment for the Bay of Pigs. He bought the boats. He had them refurbished. He had them rechristened. He changed the names to the Barbara and to the Houston. And either he's lying when he says that Bush, therefore, was involved or Bush told him that to put those names on the ships. And I think, well, you either you either trust Prouty or you don't. And I, you know, Prouty isn't right about, I'm sorry, Prouty isn't right about everything, but he is certainly dead honest. He's trying his best to, to communicate uh, the truth and did so in, in many, many uh, hardcore fashions. Oh, you missed the part, right? Prouty is Mr. X, right? Yes. Don? So, yes. and as Mr. X, he says that Kennedy told him to put into the McNamara um, Taylor trip report that all troops were to be with uh, all military, all personnel were to be withdrawn from Vietnam by the end of 65. Right. Completely uncorroborated until Professor Galbraith at the University of Texas found the memo written by Maxwell Taylor ordering the Joint Chiefs in compliance with Kennedy's October 6th decision embodied in the trip report that all personnel should be re removed by the end of 65. So Prouty is now completely corroborated in his most important and most controversial remarks. So please tell all the people attacking Prouty for me to go stuff it as far oh, up I mean, there I, as, I, as I, possible. I, I, of course you do. Yeah. Of course you do and did. Um, but so <laughs> I want to tell you a story that I learned in the third grade about this guy, in a, a, an Irish guy who's walking around and he sees a leprechaun and he catches the leprechaun. And he tells the leprechaun, take me to your pot of gold. Take me to where you have the pot of gold buried. And so the leprechaun takes him to the, where the pot of gold is buried. And the guy says, great, I, I got to go home and get a shovel. And he takes a yellow ribbon that he has in his pocket and ties it around the tree and runs home to get a shovel. And when he comes back, can you finish the story? Can I, I, I'm, I'm thinking tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree by dawn. It's not based on that, is it? No. Every no, tree in the woods has a yellow ribbon tied around it. Yeah, well, that's what they said in the song. Every tree. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Anyway, the, the point is this one, yeah. that when I first started making movies, me and the guys who made um, Loose Change, yes. we were the only guys on the internet. 
right? If you went on the internet and Google was run by Google, it hadn't been bought by the Rothschilds yet. You, I'll bet you $100 the second that the Rothschilds own Google and they own Netflix. And as, as soon as a business gets to where they are solid in Apple, to where they're solid and making money and the money's just rolling in, the Rothschilds buy them out because they got to do something with their quadrillions of dollars. Yeah, um, but back in the day, we were the only trees in the woods. And today, the woods is full of trees and most of them are poison and they all have yellow ribbons around it. And how is the innocent civilian supposed to pick out the truth from the garbage when the garbage predominates? And these guys are all paid. Um, Billy and I were, were talking previously about how there's there's suddenly this wealth of garbage, just poison. And, you, you know, they do that. Somebody has to distract people from the people telling the truth by putting out the crap. Um, yeah. and, and if somebody doesn't have somebody place else to go with this, I mean, we, I mentioned, I don't think I made the point. Uh, Trump was talking about how um, Ted Cruz's father was in a photograph yes. with Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah. Well, you know what? Ted Cruz's father was living in New Orleans and was unemployed and was very likely down at the unemployment office. And it's absolutely over the top plausible. And it, and it looks like him in the picture. Yeah. And you know what he did when Kennedy was assassinated? He left the United States and he fled to Canada because he realized that he had been passing out leafless with this guy. That's, <laughs> that's a very interesting and, and probably credible story. But the point is that Trump is trying to sound like a JFK truther. Oh, yes. He told that story because he's trying because it makes him, oh, my goodness, right? 10,000 times more credible when he. Yeah. When he acts like a baboon, it distinguishes him from all these uptight, from, you know, from the Mitt Romney types, right? From the Jeb Bush types. It makes him appear different. He's not different. He's on the same payroll, but he's, he's, much, he's much more crude. That's the difference. Yeah. He's playing the role. I call it Trump and Stein. I call it the Trump and Stein project. <laughs> he's not as polished, you know, and um, and and that was a part. Just to go back to to, to Cambridge Analytica, that, that that was the whole deal, right? To to uh, to uh, present <clears throat> to present uh, uh, an aspect to the uh, to, to present a picture to the alternative media of someone that relates to them, of someone that is familiar with the conspiracies and not only is familiar, but he subscribes to the conspiracies and will do something about them, right? Like yes, you know, he's gonna do something about them. Right. It's, that's, he, and that's, that's what Roger that's what Roger Stone told told me when uh you know he when he um I didn't really know who Roger Stone was, but he 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 called me about hidden history, how much he liked it. He ended up writing the forward to the paperback version. But uh, so my name is associated with him forever, unfortunately. But I guess there's more negatives that came with that. At first, we thought it was kind of a coup, but uh, <laughs> a lot more people object to it than not now. But it's and it's my best-selling book, so it is what it is. But uh, when he talked to me, he he Trump was just announcing for president. And he uh, he told me, "Man, you're gonna love this guy. He knows about all the conspiracies. He's like us. He's really." And I, I said, oh, "Okay, that's really interesting." And then and Trump 
would do that throughout his presidency. He would throw a little kid, but he'd stuff that people don't talk about. I mean, I was the first one to write about um, Joe Scarborough's dead at aid in like 20 years since it happened. And in mm-hmm. the industry, Lori Klesudis and Trump knew about it and he started tweeting about it to, you know, and so again, that, they were very sophisticated with how they, because they, because that's only reached people like me. A lot of people didn't know what he was talking about. What is he talking about there? And uh, he he did it, and then you know Scarborough would get angry and everything, and and then he would talk about Ben Foster. He would say, uh, you know, a lot of people think he was murdered, you know. And then who, who's his second Supreme Court nominee? Brett Kavanaugh, who led the cover up of Ben Foster's face for Kenneth Starr. So that that's Trumpenstein right there, right there. You know, you oh, think sure. yeah, for, for it me, it, it was his choosing of Mike Pence. Oh, yes, that was yes. right. And Mike Pence is the guy who declared that the anthrax came from Iraq when the scientist who introduced him at the press conference had just told you that they were very, very um, much persuaded that the anthrax was um, not from a sophisticated military lab. It was your run of the mill. It, it hadn't been altered. Right. Anyhow, so but so this guy that was in your film. That was in your film. It's in the Trump film. Right. Um, is Trump for real? Yes. If I don't think you can pay to see is Trump for real. You you might, you're welcome to if you can figure out how to do it, but otherwise you have to watch it for free and you have my permission. Anyway. Um well you're very you're very clever. you know, you're JFK Jr. Um I assume you narrate it yourself because you do a great job uh, yeah, narrating and the funny and everything. And uh, I got a lot, you know, I got a lot of your stuff, a lot of the stuff from the, the your JFK film that I used in Hidden History, uh, which was the first, really the first, the first investigation. Because I talked to JFK Jr.'s high school girlfriend and uh, somebody in his inner circle that was very, <laughs> very adamant that you know don't mention my name. I got to stay anonymous, but uh, and they they verified what I had knew. And that is that uh, he was behind the scenes. He was obsessed with his father's assassination. He was reading the same books we were. Mm. He was a conspiracy buff. No, no kidding. Alone in the family. And that was later responsible, I think, for the friction between him and his uh, sister, Caroline, because she was, you know, she didn't want anything that mentioned. And JFK Jr. was, he was the real deal. And that's um, uh, Wayne Madison. Oliver Stone. Yes, he did that. And George Magazine. Well, and in the article, Oliver Stone says that Kennedy was killed by a conspiracy. Absolutely. And what Wayne Madsen has told the story. And I'm sure you heard of Wayne Madsen. Who, oh, yes. Uh, he, uh, he verified to me in an email that he was uh, he was going on a uh, an interview to be hired by George Magazine. He would have been interviewed by JFK Jr. like, you know, a couple of days after he ended up dying. But um, and his he, JFK Jr. wanted him to come on board. And his first assignment as investigative reporter was the assassination of JFK. So they were they were they, they were going to do an assassination of uh, an investigation of his father's assassination. Publish the results in George Magazine. Just imagine uh, what, what 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 the impact that would have been coming from Wayne, his son. Wayne Madsen was supposed to be the guy to, to carry Wayne, that up. That's what he said. Wayne Madsen told me that. He's he said that verified that too. So. You know, I, I, mean, I met Wayne but, once, and, and and I I only remember I met him here in New York for nine eleven. We spoke for a bit, and and I think he was on the fringe once, but a long time ago. And I remember telling him I was like, "Man, dude, you, you must have balls of steel, bro." 
to put out some of the stuff that he puts out because he was the first one that broke uh, Obama. And um, at least the first I heard about it, it was Obama and uh, Rahm Emanuel in that in that club in Chicago doing and, and going to gay bathhouses. Yeah, he was the first to break that, and I was like, "Whoa, yeah. whoa!" Like you, you, you have to be like, uh, how, how courageous are you to even put that out? You know, it's incredible. Yeah, anyway. he's been all over there, and he, he, he was hired briefly a few years ago. Um, he, he was hired briefly by Alex Jones. He yeah. worked for Infowars very briefly, but then they had a falling out because uh, Wayne Madsen, you know, turned you know against Trump very strongly, and Alex was, you know becoming his biggest cheerleader. So, uh, but yeah, he, he's done a lot of good work and uh, it's, uh, obviously I think that's a credible source, but, you know, combined with the, what I heard from behind the scenes that he was, uh, that he was doing it. And, you know, I couldn't verify his high school girlfriend first told me that, that, you know, they were watching the house select committee assassination hearings on television together, but then she kind of backed off. So I'm not sure if that's true or not. That's, that's a, but that's a real cool image to think. You know, the JFK Juniors with his high school girlfriend, and they're watching the same hearings that well, the ones that were televised, which weren't that many, that we were. And but he he was in our world, he was reading the same oh. books that we were. Well, it, it, you haven't watched my movie lately because he also published an interview. Not, it wasn't an interview, it was an article written by the young man who went to prison for killing Yitzhak Rabin. Yes, yes. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Saying that the Mossad had killed Yitzhak yeah. Rabin yeah. Yeah. for seeking peace. Yeah. And tell me that's not relevant today, Seriously. right? Yeah. But yeah. Anyhow. And we, and we see that's, that's probably the major difference between JFK and RFK and JFK Jr. and RFK Jr. JFK was the last president, the last American president to confront Israel over their nuclear weapons program. At the time of the assassination, he was in a war of words with David Ben-Gurion. And, uh, you know, there's, you have a lot of people that, I mean, I don't think Israel could, would engineer the assassination. I mean, I think you obviously had to, had to have inside job here in America. But that's an interesting thing that he was the last one to do it. And later under Johnson, you had the liberty, the attack on liberty and the cover up and certainly anything they wanted after that. But RFK later became a big supporter of, of Israel. And that's why supposedly Sirhan Sirhan, they were trying to say that was his motivation. We know he didn't actually shoot him or didn't kill him. He wasn't the, the only assassin. He, he didn't fire the fatal shots. But And now we see today JFK Jr. behind the scenes talking about the Rabin assassination and, you know, and, and the truth and talking about the Mossad. And then RFK Jr. now just walking around with Rabbi Shlumli or whatever the guy's name is, the former crisis actor that's like handling him and, and just, you know, and, you know, putting on a, uh, you know, waving an Israeli flag in a, in a parade after he was caught retweeting Roger Waters. So I like a lot of things about RFK Jr., but that's, it, that's hard to overcome that. That's just, it's, it's really embarrassing that he went well, that far. I'm Mr. Hanky, we got, we got 15 minutes. Uh, well, I want you to hit what you need to hit. Before Let's we get out hammer, of here, the film and do everything. Right on the head. Um, be, you, neither of you has has seen the last sixty five minutes of my movie, right? Right, right, right. No. And so, um, let me invoke Jim Mars. People know who Jim Mars is, or you don't. But he's one of the great researchers in the, yes. the history of the Kennedy assassination, and really, really a lovely human being. I mean, I never met a nicer person in my life. And I met him at a 9-11 conference in San Francisco. And 
had a short discussion with him and we discussed how in the Kennedy assassination, Hunt worked for Harriman. Hunt said on the stand, he said under oath that he worked directly for Harriman. Yeah. Um, Bush's father, Prescott, was Harriman's right-hand man. Harriman owned Union Bank of New York, which funded Hitler and got seized as a Nazi asset. But Prescott owned one share and Harriman owned 4,000 shares. Um, the All those Operation Mongoose guys were in... Dealey Plaza and their boss at the Bay of Pigs was Richard Bissell and Richard Bissell worked for Harriman so that you can tie Richard, you can tie Harriman to every single aspect of the assassination and Kennedy had fired him like two months before the assassination. He kicked him upstairs. He took him off the Vietnam desk because Harriman was sabotaging um, what it was that Kennedy was trying to do, which was to to make peace in Vietnam. So I'm talking to Mars about this, and he says, you need to investigate that Harriman and Brown Brothers Harriman. Look into that. And I spent, is Billy coming back? Do you think he can? I'm right here. Oh, oh you're, I'm sorry. You disappeared. Yeah, you were camouflaged in with the chair. Like you have your, your, oh, he put his head down behind No, I was looking up. I mean, to that point. No, 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 no. It's all right. That's not the point. No, I'm, I'm going to let you get back on it. But to the point, I just want to, because every time I think about Brown Brothers Harriman, and, and that's here in New York, the building, it's right down in, in yes. uh, but right across the street from the World Trade Center. Oh, really? And and it, I, I lived there. Not not literally, but I mean, I spent a lot of time there Of a lot of my life uh, in that neighborhood. Life. Right. Exactly. Um, a, a, anyway, Brown brothers, Harriman, for some reason in my head is linked to skull and bones. I read this somewhere. I, I don't know if, 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 uh, if the Harrimans if were, were, were bonesmen, I, I'm not sure. Harriman was a bonesman. They're, they're, that's what it is. Okay. So okay. And, and that's what I was trying to verify on my phone. I'm like, who is a bonesman here? But anyway, I, I wanted right. to say about, about Harriman, I, I don't know if John knows this or not, but um, Jim Garrison privately told my friend, my good friend, John Barber, when he was, uh, has the first one to interview Garrison after the, the years after the, um, the trial of Clay Shaw, he told him, he asked him, you know, Hey, you know, who was the, who was the big enchilada? Like, you know, John and, and uh, he named Avril Harriman as the trigger man for the assassination. Garrison said he thought he was, he's the guy who gave the go. He's the CEO. Yeah. Oh, I, right. Yeah. I, I think I, I think I do a good job of showing that. Yeah. And certainly I say it, <laughs> you can, yeah. you can agree with the, yeah. the quality of the, the material that I present, but the point of the material that I present is that Harriman is the guy. Harriman, I read somewhere, received the single largest inheritance in the history of the United States, but the bank isn't called Harriman Brown Brothers. It's called Brown Brothers Harriman. And I would argue that when Harriman sets up the Union Bank of New York and starts using it to fund Hitler, where does that come from? It comes from on orders from Brown Brothers. I'll, I'll throw this in. It's not in the movie. It's not anyplace else. The SS headquarters was a palace. And they bought it, I believe, in 1932 when Hitler was running for office. And it, you know, was one of the most expensive buildings in Germany. And people said, 
where the hell did they get the money for that? And they called it the Brown House. That's mm. the name of the SS headquarters. It's not the head of, it's not the brown shirt headquarters. It's the black shirt headquarters, the black mm. uniform headquarters. But the point is, my point is that Harriman was subservient to Brown Brothers. He's a junior partner. He's taking orders from them. He's taking, he, right, he stands up and takes all the heat for supporting the Nazis in order to shield Brown Brothers from that accusation. So I go to the Brown Brothers website and I'm there about 20 minutes before I find out that in 1837, Brown Brothers was taken over by the Bank of England. I'm about 20 minutes into the Bank of England website when I find out that in 1825, the Bank of England was taken over by... One of the Rothschilds. Uh, Nathan Rothschild. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's big cheese at that time. Nathan yeah. Rothschild. Yes, Nathan. So, so two degrees of separation from the Rothschilds to Harriman. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> two, that's, that's a pretty straight line. That, uh, it's an incredibly straight line. I had exchanged emails with a guy today who said, rah, 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 rah. you know, I don't like you talking about the Rothschilds. And well, you guys brought it up. Okay. <laughs> right, right, right. So I, I talked about the, that we got to it. We talked about, I talked about, uh, you talked about people saying that the Jews cause all the problems. Yes, right. And, the international Jewish conspiracy. Right. And I, maybe I said this already, that I would insist that Ford would, didn't realize that he was in the clutches of the Rothschilds when he is creating this patently just stupid, crude disinformation about how all Jews are evil because the bankers are evil. And by doing that, he tars, he, he does it. And a hundred years later, I'm getting this crap by this guy who runs this progressive radio station saying, oh, you can't talk stuff about the Rothschilds because that appears to be anti-Semitic. Yes, I exactly. And, that, and, you know, that's what Henry, Henry Ford, one thing about him, most people, I wrote about this in uh, Crimes and Cover-Ups, Henry Ford was the, the most, one of the greatest anti-war activists of all time, most, certainly the most powerful one. He, during World War I, he took, he chartered a private, he took his yacht and he called it the peace ship. And he tried to get all these other big, important people to come and take a cruise so they could, they could talk about how can we avoid this? We don't want to get involved in this. What can we do to end the war? And nobody would come. Nobody would come. But he's tarred because of that. And what, what it does is when they. He's not tarred because of that, but go ahead. Well, no, but he, he, but he, but what happens is the same thing with bankers. When people, if you talk about banks, that automatic, well, that's code word. Because they know about the Rothschilds. That's code word. <laughs> You're talking about Jews. That's coded language. And it's the same thing with, I've, I've seen so many people, they say, I look and there's so many people that were anti-war that, you know, happen to be anti-Semitic too. And I don't know why they're drawn to that, but there, there's an overlay there. And it's, it's, it's very strange. So it's like, so I can't be against war without, you know, hating the Jews, or I can't be against, I can't be against these, these awful central banks and their, their counterfeit, Fiat currency, I can't be against that without being against the Jews. But you're you're right; they take it, and it's because of the Rothschilds and because of this 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 presence that's there that isn't talked about. I couldn't I couldn't when I was writing Survival of the Riches, I could literally couldn't find much on the Rothschilds to try to figure out how much wealth do they have. You ain't kidding. You, know? <laughs> you ain't kidding. No, they're yeah. very 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 careful about suppressing this stuff. But somebody sent me 
some fellow. He's a he's a lawyer and a PhD. And anyway, um, he sent me this link of this woman giving a two-hour speech. She's just received all these historian rewards, awards, saying, why the hell did we fight World War One?" And she's making the case that Britain did not have to enter World War One. Why did Britain enter World War One? Well, let's not lose that subject. But why did Britain enter the Revolutionary War? Why did Why did they have to fight the U.S. so that the Rothschilds could make money off it? Why did they have to fight Napoleon so that the Rothschilds could make money off both ends in both wars? So why did we have to have World War One? Well, I found this speech by a guy named Nordau, N-O-R-D-A-U, given to the 1903 Jewish Congress in which he says, there's going to be a great cataclysm and there's going to be a peace conference. And at that peace conference, England is going to grab Palestine and they're going to give it to us. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so what well so there nobody regardless of whether this guy said it and regardless of whether he was an idiot and regardless of where he got the information or whether he just made it up because he was trying to sell the people in the room on the idea that yeah we're going to get palestine nevertheless it points to the fact that if you can't figure out who benefited from World War I besides the 20 million young men who died and the widows and children of the 20 million young men who died, and God damn, you know, if 20 million got killed, 50 million got ruined, right, psychologically and physically, all these people with the, half their faces blo blown off. You don't, I don't see that anymore. But uh, after World War I, that was a big deal of all these guys who survived with half a face. Um, well, who benefited from it? The Rothschilds got Palestine out of it. And anybody else? Uh... Well, Hitler, Hitler was born out of World War One too. I mean, they... Oh, they... my goodness. And they, and they, I mean, they, they paved, I mean, they, they it was, uh, it was an, uh, almost as if it was planned, you know, <laughs> what, what, Treaty of Versailles. <laughs> well, you, you see, cause I've been doing all this research this week, right. And, and what I see very, very crystal clear, it, a student of mine found a document from 1829 that the Rothschilds went to the Sultan of Turkey and said, sell us Palestine. And the Sultan of Turkey said, those are my family. You want me to sell you my family? Well, I, I think not. And so the Rothschilds then did everything they could to undermine the Ottoman Empire. And that's a lot. They were just incredibly powerful people, right? I mean, probably they've been quadrillionaires for 100 years. I don't know what the next number up is. Um, seriously. Anyhow. Um, Nineteen seventeen, they get um, Palestine, but they have the same problem in nineteen seventeen that they had in nineteen o three. And in nineteen o three, I find this quote from these people at this conference saying these Jewish 
Zionists saying, we don't want to go to Palestine. If we go to Palestine, all these incredibly ultra-Orthodox religious Jewish people will come and take over. And we, we like Vienna, and we like Paris, and we like Rome, and we like London, and we like the freedom and the culture and the opera and the museums and everything else that we have in those cities. And we don't want to live under an Orthodox religious regime. We don't want to go to Palestine. Well, you can, half of that sentence is still true today. Why would anybody who could live in Paris or could live in London or could live in Berlin? Oh my goodness. In 1917, Berlin was just a, 1920, Berlin was just a huge artistic hotbed, right? All of this powerful art coming out of, out of Berlin in the 1920s, you see some of that in um, Cabaret, right? Cabaret reflects a lot of the real openness that there was at the time so that, how are we gonna drive these Jewish people to Palestine? Well, you see it in the 1903 conference, this guy that I mentioned, N-O-R-D-A-U, Nordau, stands up and gives a speech about how terrible life is in Europe for Jewish people. Oh, wait a minute, Sarah Bernhardt, is the star, the star of Europe on the stage. Albert Einstein is just coming into his own. Freud is the star of psychology. Chagall and on and on and on. Mendelssohn, why would Jews want to leave Europe? They're, they're, it, it, and they cite the Dreyfus Affair, and the Dreyfus Affair is a two-edged sword. On the one hand, you have these reactionary Catholics who are truly anti-Semitic, right? These are the same guys who did the Inquisition in Spain and so on. And they're really, really seriously and dangerously anti-Semitic and they're on their way out, right? They, they're losing power as rapidly as the United States is today versus Russia and China. You, you, you get my point, right? The, 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 the dominion of the United States from 1960 when John Kennedy was president, the right? The esteem and so on. This is the country that rescued the world from Nazism, uh, the, the free world. These are the leaders of the free world. And, and what are they now? They're the guys who support the war in Ukraine against the, the and, and who support the war in Gaza. Oh my God. Against 100% of the non-white world. Right. So that, and my point was that in Dreyfus, it's a similar situation where the conservatives, the racists, the, are losing out to the pro-democratic forces. Um, and in 1917, the pro-democratic forces, the progressive forces, in, at the end of World War I, Wilson went to, to Paris and, you know, I was brought up to think that he was a villain and blah, 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 whatever. He, when he came back, he had installed a socialist government in um, France. He had installed a socialist government in Spain. He had installed a socialist government in Germany, which is to say completely anti-right-wing, very, very progressive, uh, very pro-right, the rights of the ordinary people. And the Jews need to flee that and go to Palestine? So, Hitler... Don may not know this, but you need to watch Is Trump for Real? Because it shows you the pages out of the book. 
There's an article, you can Google it yourself. I was Hitler's boss. If you put quotations around, I was Hitler's boss, it will take you to the article that was written by the guy in German army intelligence who recruited Hitler at orders from Ludendorff and who ordered Hitler to, to join the Nazi party. And he went, everybody, everybody sitting at that meeting of the German workers party was a military agent or a police agent. Well, it was Wall, Wall Street and the Rise of Hitler too, Anthony Sutton. That's a great book. I Have I not? How could I not have read that book? I'm, I'm yeah, sure that I, mean, I did. Well, just, professor, professor, a, right. professor Anthony Sutton read Wall Street and the Rise of Hitler, Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution, and Wall Street and FDR. And, and crushing out skull and bones also with. Uh, yeah. Yes. I have them in my closet. You absolutely read them. I, yeah. I'm sure I did. Is is he British? Uh, He was. I think he was British. He disappeared. He's gone now, but he had a weird thing where he disappeared for several years. And but his his stuff is very good. He worked with Patrick Wood. Uh, Um, That that name doesn't ring a bell, but Sutton absolutely does. Um, Anyway, the point is that this guy writing this article that was published by the New York Times in 1942 says that. He recruited Hitler, oh, and that Ludendorff was meeting on a regular basis at the Four Seasons Hotel in Munich with the biggest capitalists in Germany. Well, if he was meeting with the biggest capitalists in Germany, he wasn't meeting with anybody but the Rothschilds. I mean, the Rothschilds at that time in Germany were, you know, two or three times, oh my goodness, two or three times the size of any competitor. And, uh, and and on and on. I've been doing this for two weeks and I'm I'm not anywhere near the bottom of the pile and the evidence is just overwhelming. Here's one for you. Have you heard of IG Farben? Sure. Right. IG Farben ran Auschwitz. Did you know that IG Farben ran Auschwitz? 24 directors of IG Farben got tried at Nuremberg and I think 14 of them got convicted. I think that was um, an IBM and the Holocaust. I think I think that's where Edwin Black, I think I read it there. Perhaps. Yeah. Um, the Rockefellers had a small stake in Auschwitz. The Rockefellers were brought in as junior partners by IG Farben. The IG Farben headquarters, like the SS headquarters, is this just palatial estate. It's on 24 acres of beautiful woodlands. It's just a gigantic building. And it, they spent five years choosing, I believe, and it might be an exaggeration. They had a huge contest. All the leading architects of Europe were invited to um, design the headquarters of IG Farben. And when they built it, they built it on the Rothschild estate. Billy, how, how late are we going, brother? We're done. We're done right now. We're okay, right yeah, because I, I was going to say, because I mean, I, I love talking, but I, I, okay. I applied John, to John, and- John's going to be on America Unplugged with us on Saturday. Cool. We'll continue and, and we'll flesh everything out. But for now, uh, John, just tell everybody where they can find your film and everything is everything that you got going on. Well, Billy Ray, are you going to sell it? You can, you can. Rent it for 99 cents on Vimeo. Type in Breakthrough JFK. You can rent it for 99 cents on Vimeo. I recommend that you go to Amazon and buy it for $15. Um, 
because then you have the DVD. And if you have the DVD, you have a permanent record. And I think everybody can testify about how Google and Amazon and Netflix, they get rid of everybody whenever they, they choose to. And in, in 20 years, you're very, very liable to have a hard time getting your hands on it. But if you, if you have the DVD, you can open up the DVD and Google it how to do it. It couldn't be simpler. You just drag the the, the key file onto your hard drive and now you have a, a completely right 100% um, reliable and clear video version of the movie uh, that you can keep and hand down to your kids and grandkids. Um, it's also on darkroom.film and um, if you are a movie buff, darkroom.film is if is really really a treasure and a find so i would also encourage people and and i i think they haven't gotten they're setting it up and i don't think they charge people yet um and so i'm 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 certain certain that they don't charge people yet so you can see whatever they have you can see it for free and i think the plan in fact is only to make you watch a couple of commercials i don't know that they're ever planning to charge people but darkroom.film so and you know they're kind enough to carry my movie i'm all praise and glory Fantastic. No, it sounds good. Let's talk about carrying it. We're opening up a store over at Free World at some point, and uh, we'd love to carry your stuff there. Um, well, I'll autograph it for you, and then you can sell autographed copies. That is a must. That that needs to happen. And, of course, the legendary Don Jeffries. Tell the people where they can find you, sir. Uh, only place I'm not shadow man is Substack. Please subscribe to me there, donaldjeffries.substack.com. My new book just came out, written with William Law, Pipe the Bimbo in Red. Dean Andrews, Jim Garrison, and the conspiracy to kill JFK. Uh, that's just hot off the presses, and it's based uh, a lot on my very close friendship. Dean Andrews III was my brother's best friend somehow. <laughs> and uh, so he's been a family of the friend for years, and it's the first time he's talked, spoken out. Uh, it's got a lot of nice behind-the-scenes stuff as well. We analyze the, uh, you know, the, the New Orleans level, what I call the ground-level conspiracy. All these people are being manipulated against each other. Then. First and foremost, of course, Oswald. Right. Uh, quick question. Yes or no, John, and we can flesh it out later. Uh, Dr. Mary's Monkey and everything. Are you familiar with that book? I forget the name of the author. No, Ed, Ed Haslam Edward Haslam. Ed ha actually, he actually wrote the preface to the book. Really? Yes. Yeah. That's dope. I want to speak to Ed Haslam. It'd be nice. Uh, what do you think of, of, of that? I don't know if, if you're familiar at all, but if, if, if you are I'm very familiar with the name, I've read any number of references and summaries of it, but I don't recall at the moment. I haven't read the actual book. Remind me what it's about quickly. Well, it's about, it's about Mary Sherman, Dr. Mary Sherman, who died very mysteriously in the research. So the problem is Judith Baker kind of gets thrown in there. And that's that's the problem that she's kind of connected. With. I think Haslam's research is really good. I see. Uh, Baker, I'm a, I'm a little dubious about, but he's you certainly and, me both. and he certainly has it right about Mary Sherman. I mean, she she was found what burned to death and, and with, with a gunshot wound to the heart or something. I mean, you know, just typical mafioso type stuff. So she was she was doing some uh, important research. I think. I I think that I've invariably encountered it in discussions of Judith Mary Baker, who you and I agree is uh, yeah. Yeah. not the most reliable person. Oh, that was my yeah. question. So there you go. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. So we're going to do this again on Saturday. John uh, John Hankey and, and Don Jeffries, Tony Arterburn, and myself will be on right. America Unplugged. 
We're going to discuss current events and we're going to continue to talk JFK and John's film. What's up, John? I see you. What's going on? You good? I'm good. I thought you had something to say. So nope. we're going to we're going to do all of that. So make sure uh, you come back and join us uh, on uh, Saturday, 12 p.m. Eastern right here on America Unplugged on Rockfin and America Unplugged dot com. America Unplugged on Apple Podcasts, And of course, the infinite fringe dot podbeam.com and the infinite the infinite fringe on Apple podcast. We got more for the end of the year. We're going to finish it strong, ladies and gents. Thank you, Mr. Hankey. It's always a pleasure and an honor to have you on. And of course, the legendary Don Jeffries. These are two of uh, of uh, you know the the most respected JFK researchers that we have uh, here in the alternative media. These two guys. I mean, they can go on for hours and hours and hours. And it's it's uh, it's, it's certainly a pleasure to host both of you. All right, we're getting up out of here. Do not burn the place down while we're gone. I'll see you guys soon. Okay, take it easy now. Bye bye. Hold on, guys. Both of you for a second. Okay. Boom.